Attention listeners of the Synchronicity Podcast. Our fellow news anchor, Kai, has reportedly fallen into a vat of radioactive material and turned into a giant monster. He's 700 feet tall and rampaging through the streets of Tokyo. Our Japanese correspondent, Takeshi Kikamori, is on the scene. Well, Takeshi appears to have been stomped on by the giant Floridian being. We'll move on to Destin now to talk about the lovely city of Tokyo and all its oddities before today. Well, Kobe, looks like Florida Man strikes again. Yes, he has, and that is the exact reason he will not be joining us this week for a new segment. Yeah, that, and you know, that's the only reason. You know, it's it's totally not that we couldn't come up with any, you know, entertaining stories this week, and it's totally not that Kai had other engagements that uh, kept him from being able to record. It's it, it it's it's not that at all. No, no, of course not. Of course not. No, we wouldn't lie to our audience. This is a real news bulletin. Just just tune into CNN or any anywhere you get your news. You we will see a seven hundred foot Kai rampaging through the streets of Tokyo. And there's no way you can disprove us. There's absolutely no way. And you know what? If you try to, fake news. True. Fake news, everybody. We're the real news. We're the realest news around. Anything else is fake news. True that, brother. True that. Now, with all that out of the way, welcome back, everybody, to the Synchronicity Podcast. I'm Destin. And I am Kobe. And, you know, so our our co-host, Kai, he's not here. You know, he's become a monster. It's a, a real shame. But you know what? He he tried to kidnap me and replace me last week, so I don't feel too bad. Yeah, no, I mean, he deserved it. He deserved to fall in that vat of radioactive material. He deserved to fall. Let's let's go with that word into the radioactive vat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you? I won't. I won't worry about it right now. What are we? What are we talking about this week? That's, that's probably a good idea. Uh, well, you know, first I gotta say, unfortunately, obviously, with Kai not being here and and the lack of good news stories, we will be skipping over the news segment this week. You know. Too mm-hmm. bad I, I introduced this segment just two episodes ago, and it's it's gone as quickly as it came. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But hopefully, with any luck, uh, we'll we'll be able to restore Kai to his human form in some future episode and uh, resume our activities as they were. Someday, someday, someday. But in in lieu of the news segment, we will jump straight into our discussion, uh, which this week is on a very interesting movie called, as you may have guessed it, because our intros usually, not always, but usually are thematically relevant, Tokyo. That would be with an exclamation point. (laughs) Tokyo! Tokyo! Tokyo is an anthology film with the city of Tokyo as its central character and the only consistency across three vastly different short films from three prominent non-Japanese directors, two of which Kobe and I are well aware of and have a great appreciation for. Who do you think those those two directors are, Kobe? Michel Gondry and uh, Bong Joon-ho. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, uh, you know, this movie came out in 2008, so it's uh, post Eternal Sunshine, Michelle Gondry, pre Parasite, Bong Joon Ho. So it's kind of you know in an interesting middle ground in these directors' careers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Tokyo explores a wide range of cultural and psychological issues, deeply tapped into the lifeblood of the city itself. The concept is further explored and expanded upon by the foreign nature of the directors. You know, this is two French directors and a South Korean director, so they're kind of approaching the identity of Tokyo from a alien-ish perspective, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from people becoming chairs to sewer monsters raging through the streets of Tokyo and Hikikomori finding love, this is definitely a weird one, but hopefully it, it should be an interesting topic all the same. Mm. It's unique <laughs> to start out with. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it definitely is. This... This movie has been on both of our watch lists for a considerable amount of time, but I got to admit, I really didn't know anything about it going in. Mm-hmm. It's 
pretty much I wouldn't say it's the most unexpected thing, but um, I, I definitely didn't know what I was getting into with this. Yeah. And, you know, as, as always with our movie discussions, this is going to go into spoilers. So, you know, I mean, since it's an anthology film, it's pretty easy to break up. We're going to talk about them in the order that they appear in the movie. So if you wanted to, you know, listen to a part of the podcast and watch a segment ahead of time, uh, you could do that. You could watch the whole thing. I think that the, and I, I don't know if Kopi will agree or disagree with me on this. I think that the thematic nature of the short films kind of in a way as different as they are, they work together. Mm -hmm. I think that it works better as a full package than watching them one at a time. But I mean, you know, who am I to tell you how to watch it? <laughs> they're, at they're any rate. Odd. Yeah. Let's start off by talking about interior decorating, which is the uh, first film in the anthology and the one directed by Michelle Gondry. Kobe, I'm going to let you take us in. Um, well, as mentioned earlier, um, I have an appreciation for, for Michel Gondry. Um, Eternal Sunshine, obviously, is like his, his big movie. And, um, and admittedly, the only movie of his that I've seen, but it also <laughs> is among my top 10. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's a good mix of, uh, Gondry's sort of whimsical nature and, uh, I think childlike is a decent descriptor, not childlike in the sense that it feels like a childish movie, like it's immature or that sort of thing. Um, there's like a level of immaturity, but I think it's done really well in Eternal mm -hmm. Sunshine. And then yeah. you have uh, obviously Charlie Kaufman's <laughs> just super depressing uh, worldview sort of mixing together. And I think it makes a really interesting product and, um, in Gondry's segment in Tokyo, there's a lot of that whimsy uh, showing through. Um, obviously, since it's just one tiny segment, uh, you're going to get a lot more um, of a director's style, sort of, uh, I don't know what the word is specifically. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see a director's vision more potently than like... I mean, obviously, a, a whole length film can display that, but it's like it's a lot more potent because it's squeezed down into a, a smaller runtime. Well, and, and then you have the contrast of the other oh yeah pieces yeah. in here, which are you know of course very different. Yes, I think um, one of the strongest parts of of this film as a whole is how um, consistent they are, and yet completely different, um, mm -hmm. consistently thematically, but. Uh, subject matter and filming style and performances and all that sort of thing are all very different. Um, and Michel Gondry's is, I think, <laughs> probably my second favorite. It's um, it doesn't have a lot going on, but I like the dreamlike quality of it all, um, and it feels sort of it's like talking about um, artists and what art can mean for a certain person and sort of feeling uh, one one's need to be useful and that sort of thing. Um, so I think if it was maybe extended to a longer, uh, longer runtime, it could explore these ideas more thoroughly. But I think the runtime it's given, it does it in an interesting and sort of, uh, I don't know. Uh, in depth, it's in depth, but it's not. It's maybe not long enough. Um, I think it's weird because I think this whole thing is it like overly long. Um, but I think if it if he was given a longer runtime, he could maybe stretch it out to a longer runtime and make it feel natural. But I do like this one uh, quite a bit, regardless. Yeah, you know, and I think this was actually I didn't pay attention to the timestamps, but I think this was actually the shortest segment. It felt that way, certainly. It it, it did feel that way. And I, I, I want to say right away, too, that none of these shorts introduced who the director was at the start of the short. Mm -hmm. That always came with the credits at the end of the short. So I didn't know that this was going to be Gondry's when the movie started. 
Mm -hmm. But within probably a minute to two minutes, I, I knew I could tell that it was gone Dries because it, I, I agree with you, Kobe, that I think this one would have worked a lot better if it had been longer. I think that like the first two thirds of it are really strong. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of falters in that final third because that final third that that's when we're in this, like, you know, all of the inciting incidents have happened and it's kind of reaching that climatic space. And I think that that last portion was more rushed than it could have been. I think spending an extra even five, 10 minutes on that segment and exploring the idea that it's going for would have worked in the short's favor tremendously. I think it starts to build up what it's trying to say. Um, and it's like its identity um, comparatively to the other two. Um, and obviously when you start to build something like that in the third act, it can't really go anywhere. Um, maybe can't reach its full peak that you wanted it to. Um, the first, the first two thirds are related of course, and they're, they're very, important on the grand scale of things but i think the third act is where things start to reveal themselves more right yeah i mean it's where the the concept is actually you know properly explored and so you get a lot less time with the ideas that gondry is trying to explore you know like like you said it's so so it's a story about these this young couple that is moving to tokyo and Neither of them have really found success, mm-hmm. but the the boyfriend, Akira, is a free spirit, and he seems to kind of just be able to land on his feet. It doesn't seem like things get to him very easily. Mm-hmm. But his girlfriend, Hiroko, is, you know, as all of these, like, shortcomings and issues start to come up in in this move to Tokyo and as she you know tries her best to feel useful I guess to Akira I mean that's that's what like the key point here is this like listless energy of her feeling useless mm-hmm. which is of course ironic because she ends up doing quite a lot for Akira in the background mm-hmm. you know she gives a lot of herself to uh his creative process and you know i i think that she was selling herself short a little bit but but that seems to be the overall like anxious energy that's present in this short is this this need to feel useful this uh facet of her feeling like she is meaningless to akira and it it all culminates in you know this shift to magical realism where you know in the street she begins to transform into a chair and then she eventually finds i guess her home in the home of uh seemingly another artist uh, uh, he has a, a guitar he seems to be a musician mm-hmm. of some variety and she lives her life as a chair finally in her words feeling useful right <laughs> It it definitely sounds um, like if you haven't seen this short, it's definitely odd while you're watching it too, but I think explaining it doesn't exactly do it justice. Um, and it can sound like the most idiotic thing you've ever heard. But uh, no, I think it is blatant as it is maybe. Like she's useful now because she's literally a, a, a she's chair. furniture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, there's... There's this this level of of um, maybe background uh, usefulness that you mentioned, um, and it's not just super blatant. Um, and I like that there's this comparison, or maybe I felt this way, um, and how uh, Akira is sort of <laughs> making these art films that are very like very very experimental. They're um, completely. Like you can't even understand what's going on, and there's like smoke to involve the audience and and make them feel the atmosphere of the film. And you know, it kind of resembles like the 
70s into the 80s era of exploitation films i feel like yeah 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 yeah. and it's like he um maybe i guess you could you could see some artistic merit in that certainly um and he's getting all this recognition from these people and he's reaping all the benefits and uh hiroko feels like she did a lot of work for nothing or perhaps she feels that I didn't do anything for for this, and I'm not I'm not benefiting from it because I didn't do anything. She sort of convinces herself that she's not very useful, despite the fact that, as you mentioned, she's she's going and, and getting all the all the pieces that Akira needs for the show, and she's um, basically busting her ass to get everything to work right and. You know, he barely notices. Nobody really notices. Um, uh, and I think that idea implements itself well through the throughout the whole thing. But I think it's there's a few extra minutes that I wish were dedicated to maybe strengthening the idea rather than restating it. Or at least that's how it felt to me. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, when there's, you know, he while they're having an argument earlier in the short, he he comes up with this idea for another movie concept where he he passes by this uh crack between two buildings. And he comes up with the idea of these ghosts or or spirits or some type of entity that are flat and they live between the buildings. Mm-hmm. And you know, the Japanese government try to to cement the cracks up the cracks always open and the the unseen flat people are always there and in her letter to akira at the end of the short she talks about how she is you know living between the buildings now mm-hmm. so it, it's pretty clear at that point that hiroko sees herself as the unseen you know, she's like the invisible glue that's like behind everything. It's she's not a a, a foreground character, and I, it plays into this fact too that she she didn't act in Akira's movie, mm-hmm. and you know, all the characters seem to have some idea that she has a lack of ambition, and like so, all of these things are are kind of crushing her and giving her anxiety and. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of as, as the movie ticks down and you're like hearing all these things from the other characters, you know, they're staying with a friend and their friend has a, seemingly has a good job at a a salary company in Japan, but she has a one bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, this is the really ironic and and kind of funny thing. Her apartment, her one bedroom, tiny coffin like apartment is better than anything that the couple can find. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, you know, really that plays into this whole idea of like Tokyo being an expensive city to live in. I mean, it's one of the most expensive cities in the world to live in, and there's a insane lack of space. Right. You know, so so they're looking at these horrible, horrible, horrible apartments with dead animals outside the windows, <laughs> bugs in the floorboards. Not at all nice, you know. Yeah. And it it's pretty clear that they're coming from somewhere in the countryside and you know they're not quite like prepared for what they're finding. And you know then to add even more into this like anxiety and these these feelings that she like doesn't measure up to anyone else in her life. Uh, she wants to get a job at a at a gift store wrapping presents. And she and Akira both apply for this job and Akira gets it immediately because he apparently is, you know, pretty decent at rapping and she fails. But the odd thing is that it's not like Akira is, you know, just like a natural born talent. I would say that this movie that he's made, yeah, he's getting some recognition, but it can be questionable whether the recognition that he's getting is anything meaningful. Right. <laughs> anything that will actually matter in the end or make him famous. You know, it's, it's really like tough to say whether these people are, are truly appreciating his work or just appreciating the novelty of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, are they actually getting what he's going for? 
And, you know, he even mentions that at his wrapping job, you know, a few days after he's been there, that he's not meeting quotas. He's supposed to be like able to wrap 11, I think he said, in in a certain number of rolls of paper and he's only doing eight. And so, I mean, it's not like he's like an infallible natural born talent, mm-hmm. but it's still like everything that's happening is kind of crushing in on Hiroko. And that's, that's really where I feel like this movie could have used more length is in that third act. I feel like we could have just gone a little deeper into that. Cause it's a, it's a hard shift mm-hmm. when that magical realism starts. It's a hard shift. And like I was saying earlier, you can immediately tell that this is Gondry's short. It feels like eternal sunshine in its tone and its kind of pacing, I feel like anyway. Mm-hmm. But then that magical realism shift happens and there's magical realism in eternal sunshine too, but it plays out so naturally. But then in this, it's just that hard shift. You know, she wakes up and she's becoming a chair and it's, it. I don't know, it's maybe a bit abrupt. I feel like a little bit more cushioning around that and then a little bit more in the final bits of the third act would have helped to explore the concept. It definitely felt like as as soon as she starts to realize this this whole chair thing, um, the movie's almost on like a speed run. <laughs> like it's yeah. um, it starts to really move a lot faster, which isn't exactly working in its favor. Yeah, I, I would agree. I did like the filmmaking of it, though. Oh yeah, uh, and I thought the the soundtrack that they chose for it was good. I mean, it like I said, it, it is it exactly like Eternal Sunshine? No but it at least feels tonally adjacent. Right. So uh, I think that pretty much covers everything with interior decorating. Uh, I would say it probably was my second favorite too, but we'll, we'll talk more in, in like the sum up at the end of the show about our thoughts on um, everything as a whole and how they, they rank. Right. So the next short and I think possibly the most conflicting for me, and I, I don't know, I'm going to be curious to see what you thought of it, Kobe. <laughs> Merde by Leos Karak. Karak? I, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Karak? I, I don't know. I'm learning French. I should know, but <laughs> uh, I'll go first on this one. So uh, obviously with Michel Gondry and Bong Joon-ho, Kobe and I have had experiences. We like a lot of their movies we love. Uh, you know, Eternal Sunshine. I love Parasite and so many of Bong Joon Ho's movies. Uh, this director is the only one that I have not seen anything from. And actually, prior to this, I you know, I realized as I was looking him up after watching the movie that I have heard of Holy Motors. Mm. I I don't know when I heard of it. And I hadn't explored it, but I have heard of it. And I, I didn't make that connection going into this. So this this was sort of like a really out of left field <laughs> short. Everything about it was completely unexpected for me. I, like right after the first short was done, I was like, okay, so there's going to be some some weird sort of oddity prevailing through this entire thing. But uh, yeah, this was basically diving straight to the bottom of the fucking lake like <laughs> there's this this one's insane uh yeah i mean i i'm really curious now like i i i want to say right away that as conflicted as i am with this it didn't turn me off of the idea of watching the uh director's other movies i'm very curious uh holy motors i added to my watch list now i I'm definitely curious to see more. And I'm obviously a fan of Lynch and I'm going to make that Lynch connection here because there were a lot of parts in here where this started to feel kind of Lynchian esque. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wondered while I was watching it, if that, if that was going to be working for you or not. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't say I love this one. Um, I don't even know if I like it really. I don't, there's there's aspects of it I I enjoy. Um, I do like uh, Denis Levant 
I've seen him in um, uh, a different movie, uh, Bo Travai. Um, and I think he's, <laughs> he gives a really interesting performance here as, you know, like this, this weird troll creature, but I don't know. On the overall, it's a bit, um, it's a bit too out there for me, I think. Well, and it's, you know, it's such a, uh, an interesting tonal shift coming off of the first <laughs> short. Yeah. It, it was so unexpected. And the tone of this short is in and of itself really contrasting and odd. The The first scene we see of the sewer ma- monster, Monsieur Merde, he, he comes out of the sewer and it's, it's playing the um, original Godzilla theme. And he's marching like through the streets of Tokyo and he's smoking a cigarette rudely and he's just running through people. He's eating flowers. He grabs some money off of a guy and starts eating it. <laughs> he licks a girl's armpits. It's it's a sailing. <laughs> you know, it's an, it's actually intense. But at this point, it's kind of funny. Mm, yeah. I was laughing during yeah. this scene. And then... Uh, Monsieur Merde goes back down into the sewers, and this is where things really start to shift. So, th- this whole thing with with this weird sewer man is is it's playing out kind of like Godzilla. Like the the Japanese authorities are hunting him, and they can't find him. He's in the sewers, and they keep having these news broadcasts. Or like, you know, who is this strange? smelly uh foreigner who's like terrorizing our streets yeah and everything is played with like a really straight face and it and again they it's obvious that they're calling back to godzilla the music is one thing but there's so much with how it's paced and like the, the what's going on with the scene that clearly clearly represents godzilla but the whole, the whole thing is sorry. No, actually, I'll let you continue. I have I have a thought after you're finished. I'm sorry. Okay, that's that's fine. <laughs> but once he goes back into that sewer, this is where I feel like things start to take a more Lynchian turn. Hmm. And I'm used to Lynch, but there was something about this, and I don't know if it was just the night I watched this movie or what it was. But as soon as he's back down in the sewer and he's going through like these old World War II bunkers there's like this intensity to it. It started to like really get under my skin. It became unsettling very quickly as he's like, you know, walking through these halls and, you know, it it seems like this director is also familiar with using disconcerting noise. Mm. You know, aside from the Godzilla theme, we don't get like a lot of music, but there's a low drone over everything he does in the sewer. And it, I I don't know, it it just immediately started to make me feel uncomfortable. It was like watching Eraserhead. Hmm. And he goes down into this old World War II bunker and he finds a stockpile of grenades. And lo and behold, this is where like the shock value starts. He starts, he goes up to, you know, some street in Shinjuku and starts blowing people up. (laughs) And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> I was not, I, I somehow, when I sat down to watch this anthology film, I was not expecting this at all. And all of a sudden, all this shock value is, is happening. And, and, and it just keeps adding to this unsettling feeling. And, you know, I, I gotta let Kobe give some of his thoughts, but... You know, the the man himself, Monsieur Merde, he is an, an unsettling creature in and of himself. You know, he's got this... When I first saw him, this is going to sound funny, he reminded me of the Grinch. <laughs> he's in a, a, a green suit. He has this long red beard. You know, he I've seen him described online, and this makes sense, it's kind of leprechaun-esque. Mm. And that obviously makes sense if you understand the context of his character. But, you know, he's got this like stringy red hair. He's got cloudy eye. He's got these curled talon-like nails. He's an odd creature. And every scene with him starts to make you feel more and more uncomfortable. And then, like I say, you get to the scene where he's chucking grenades and and you're just like, my God, (laughs) 
I will tell you that when this started, I was not prepared to see a weird leprechaun-esque troll throwing grenades at Japanese citizens. Um, it's about the last thing that entered my mind. Um, and I think I, early on in the segment, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm sort of into this. This is, this is odd, a little, you know, off-putting, and, and I'm interested to see where this goes. And when this segment comes up, when he starts throwing these grenades, I just all, like, I swear to God, my mind rose out of my head. I was just like, okay, I don't, I don't know how to feel anymore. I was completely, I was mystified. This is, I, I can definitely understand where you're coming from with this. Like, uh, it, it gets under your skin when he's in the sewers and there's, it's, it's like, creepy and it feels like a horror film yeah but i guess i <laughs> i guess i never really latched <laughs> on to that um to that feeling as a whole um mostly because well you you describe parts of it as lynchian and obviously i'm not a lynch fan in the slightest regard um i don't really enjoy that sort of um i don't enjoy that feeling of of oddity and um extra extra real as in you know like whatever um but i don't know there there's like parts of this that i that i i vibe with uh when he's in the sewers there's like the shot of his his milky eye in the corner of the screen and it and it honestly kind of terrified me um oh i i want to say that my feelings on the short as a whole aside I really, 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 really appreciated the filmmaking in mm-hmm. the segment. Mm-hmm. Aside from the scene where he was throwing the grenades, which had some markedly bad CGI, right? This is a really well shot one. This it, this might be the most visually appealing, maybe bar Bong Joon Ho's. Yeah, yeah, I think I prefer Bong's. I think it's a bit more um, crisp looking to me. But there's definitely a lot of really interesting camera work in this one specifically. Um, yeah. That's it's one of its strongest suits for sure. Um, and I will say at the very least that I can appreciate what it's going for um, and that it doesn't skimp out on what it wants to be. Uh, it commits wholeheartedly to what it's trying to do and it's not like giving, um, it's not trying to help the audience understand. It kind of just goes buck wild uh into the the deep end um i can appreciate that at the very least well and you know i want to say this when this short came up and as i was watching it i was kind of like this kind of feels like one of the movies that the character from the first short akira would have made you know this feels like a weird experimental kind of uh, horror drama (laughs) um and even after the grenade scene, I would say that after that is when I truly got disconcerted with it. Mm-hmm. That's like where things like, like like the entire short after that had me feeling uncomfortable. And again, I, I'm I'm a Lynch fan, so I, I can take a lot of weirdness, but it goes as, as you get into like the, the bureaucracy surround, because, like, you know, right after that scene happens, they end up catching him and it starts this like, huge legal battle over uh the japanese government's attempt to execute him and there's this um french magistrate who is one of only three people in the world that speak the same language (laughs) as merde it's a very very weird out there concept (laughs) and and so he you have now this character introduced who is you know, speaking in all these weird tongues and tapping his nails. He, he looks exactly like Merida. He's <laughs> tapping his nails against his teeth and communicating with him. And he's also speaking French, but then you have all the Japanese characters. It's, it's a very odd thing tonally to watch. <laughs> and as we get into the trial and his imprisonment, it, it starts to even get more and more and more uncomfortable because again, the drowning noise is persistent <laughs> And there's like, like a cult develops around Merde, and I, I don't know. It's it's a very very odd piece. I just wish they would cut their goddamn nails. Like he could speak the same language, but 
Oh, those things are gnarly. Their nails were gnarly, that's for <laughs> sure. And, you know, I think I, I want to say that what the director is going for here is kind of a, an idea of the xenophobia the, the Japanese feel towards outsiders. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It, it's tough to say if that's what is actually happening because they're justified in their fear of Merida. He's rude, loud, and boisterous and mm-hmm. he's frightening and then he murders hundreds of Japanese citizens. <laughs> yeah. So you can't really feel sympathetic for him as they, you know, decide that he is to be executed. Yeah, and this is I'm not sure I guess I'm not like fully connecting this this mention, but um when he's in the bunker and he finds this stockpile of grenades, um it mentions something about uh Nanking on the wall. Yeah. Uh, the rape of Nanking uh was like this this huge obviously this war crime that um the Japanese military uh committed during World War Two and mm-hmm. the uh, Japanese government doesn't like to talk about that for obvious reasons. Um, and I was I was trying to connect that the whole time to sort of um, maybe the Japanese uh, view of of the Chinese people and that sort of thing. Um, but it's I don't know. It's like I was trying to see if there was some political message or like socio political message that I could glean from all the oddity well, I, I think there is you know merde has like a a weirdly burning hatred for the japanese mm-hmm. and and that seems to play into why he does what he does and so there seems to be a there seems to be a definite like xenophobic message in here somewhere but there's also one about terrorism mm-hmm and I don't think that's really all that surprising considering that this movie came out in 2008. And so, you know, it's it's still like the post 9-11 years. It's Iraq is still happening and uh, renewed ferocity. And I, I feel like that plays into it. Right. I, I don't know. This one is so hard for me to unpack. <laughs> yeah, this is something I I myself don't, really appreciate all that much um i don't like love it or anything like that but i would absolutely understand why someone would like it a lot i just don't personally connect with it or it's um surrealism um but if i can if i can maybe better understand the the politics of it then i could uh, appreciate it more certainly yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I it seems like it would take a like a reevaluation, a, a, another look. I'd mm-hmm. be curious to watch these shorts again at some point. Mm-hmm. I feel like something more could be taken away from all of them on a rewatch. And I, I would I would very much like to better understand this one. And I do know, I, as I was doing my research, I I came to the conclusion that uh, Monsieur Merde returns in Holy Motors. As one of the many characters that Den- Denis Levant plays, mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm I'm curious to see how that plays. This is the odd thing is that that character is then in his big feature, but the character has its origins in this uh, compilation of short films, this anthology film, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, and and that's you know again, was this my favorite? No, it, it was my least favorite by far, but the the visuals of it are so striking and the feeling that it left me with is pervasive and i think that it may end up staying in my mind you know like it might stay in my retention longer than the others i I, it feels in a way compelling that way right but well that that was meriday uh i wish I wish Kobe and I had a little, you know, better understanding of uh, <laughs> what, it, what it was going for, but maybe on a revisit. If you like, if you like odd stuff, it'll, it'll probably be fine. <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, like I say, I'm 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 a Lynch veteran now, and even for me, it was it was odd. Again, before we leave it, uh, tonally very interesting because as uncomfortable as it was making me feel, there it it continued to also have little comedic moments for me, mm. especially as the uh, magistrate made his appearance. I don't know it. It was odd because it kept making you go through like this bizarre range of emotions that you really shouldn't be experiencing at the same time. <laughs> you know, it, like you're feeling fear, but also I don't know, odd, odd short, very odd short. Anyway, uh, finally, to, to wrap things up here on this episode, uh, the third and final short is Shaking Tokyo by Bong Joon-ho. And I'll let uh, Kobe take us in on this one again. I, I, judging by what we've said about the last two, I think that this is both of our favorites, mm-hmm. which is unsurprising. We both like Bong Joon-ho. But I'm I'm also, you know, uh, I, I think that the Hikikomori uh, situation in Japan, but also the, the world at large, the Hikikomori crisis is not at all exclusive to Japan, mm-hmm. is really interesting and compelling to begin with. So I, I and, and I... Yeah, I'm I'm excited to to talk with Kobe about this one just just from the standpoint of the cultural significance. Yeah. Um this one is uh I remember reading some reviews beforehand, um just seeing what people thought uh comparatively and obviously you have a lot of Bong Joon Ho fans giving it, you know, like a straight 5 and and absolutely adoring it. And I figured that it would be the same experience for me. And it sort of was, Mm -hmm. um, I think I personally like this one a lot more than the other two visually. Um, like I said earlier, it's, it's a lot crisper, uh, to me. Um, and there's a lot of really interesting compositions with, uh, the sort of symmetry of this, uh, this man's apartment, uh, with all the pizza boxes stacked high and, uh, water bottles in his uh, like little fridge there and um, all the books that he reads and all that sort of thing. Um, and it's like claustrophobic, but very, uh, there's a very solitary feeling that um, lies throughout this film. Obviously um, we have this, this man who's uh, hasn't been outside in like 11 years uh, or 10 years Um and he doesn't but really I think see it's people. 11th by the, by the time the, the short ends. Yeah. Right, right, right. So it's, it's, it's 10 at the beginning, but we, uh, we see like a year of, of this man's life. Um, and he doesn't look people in the eye, uh, when he orders pizza or sushi or whatever it is that he's going to be eating that, that day. Um, and he completely cuts himself off from the rest of civilization, essentially. Um, uh, with minor uh, deliveries, obviously, so that he can remain alive. But um, just the feeling of this one for me is what really got me. Um, it's very off-putting and uncomfortable in a different way that the uh, this that Merde is. Um, it's not uncomfortable in its shock with how disgusting this creature looks and and his you know his disgusting little home in the sewers and that sort of thing mm-hmm. uh it's it's a lot more off-putting in that it's like it feels like there's something very very wrong i mean obviously you have the surface of him being locked away for 10 years but there's this like looming presence of something on the outside that's making him stay inside. Uh, you know, we're led to believe that it's just, he just got sick of like seeing the sun and, and being around people all the time. But as the short goes on, you're, you start to feel like there's something more. Uh, and obviously eventually uh, he meets this pizza girl that he can't resist looking at. And uh things start to change a little bit and you can you get a sense of where it's going but you i i would say it's it's hard to fully uh predict what path it's starting to go on at that point um and i like how unpredictable it is in that sense 
Yeah. Um, well, so in, as, yeah. as I was saying earlier, the um, the hikikomori situation in Japan is like a legitimate problem. <laughs> there are numerous, numerous, uh, thousands, probably. I don't, I don't know an exact number, but there are a lot of people in a very similar situation to the character that we follow in this movie. There, there are people that, you know, feel for one way or another outcast from society. And so they've rejected the outside world and, um, you know, sometimes definitely justifiably so depending on what they see out there and they've rejected the outside world and it's it resembles agoraphobia though it i mean it's not it's not necessarily like agoraphobia but they spend their entire lives indoors and because of how the familial support system works i guess in japan you know then their their parents will I get, you know, pay for them to just live in a room. Mm-hmm. And that's what our character is, is doing in this movie. Uh, his father sends him money every month. And uh, he said for the first year of him staying indoors, he got a, a message from his father and then his father stopped sending the messages. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's an issue because society at large in Japan is kind of leaving these people behind these hikikomori behind because they're, you know, so obsessed with work and uh, efficient lifestyles. And, you know, we see a bit of that in here too. This hikikomori that we follow in this movie is very precise and efficient, um, you know, obsessively compulsive about how he's stacking all of his pizza boxes and, his toilet paper rolls and his mm-hmm. house is incredibly neat that now that is, you know, if you get into like Ikikomori documentaries, <laughs> I don't think that's a common thread. <laughs> like most of them live pretty hoarderish lifestyles, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. It, in this movie, it serves as like a, a concept of uh, the, the efficiency of how this man spends his time. And, you know, my favorite element of showcasing that is that he has, he's been living in his house for 10 years, making contact with absolutely no one. He won't even look these delivery people in the eyes, like you said. Mm-hmm. And I mean, after 10 years, anyone would run out of things to do. So this man can like pretty much, you know, he he like just entertains himself by watching the motion in the space around him he Mm -hmm. just like visualizes in essence the energy of the world around him and it's it i don't know it's it's dramatic and and kind of sad and troubling (laughs) yeah it's it's definitely yeah it's it's that's a good that's a good descriptor because i think i was at the most peace with with this short comparatively um i felt sort of relaxed um very sad <laughs> and uh i felt very awful for this fictional character because i know it's a real crisis in japan and that not uh to be a hikikomori could very well be a negative connotation that you apply to someone immediately but you know again this is not an isolated issue to japan though i mean this yeah, is yeah yeah the the psychology of the hikikomori is interesting because i mean it can happen to anyone you know with society as it is and and the way things are going um i feel like this is going to happen more and more especially with the prominence of the internet in our lives Mm -hmm. and the ease at which we can get everything we want online you know you're going to see a lot more people just being well what is what does the outside world offer me that being in my safe little bubble doesn't right and i think i think the pandemic has given a lot of people sort of a test run of that lifestyle because mm-hmm. obviously they're not allowed to leave their homes and and go to work and that sort of thing and there's going to be a lot of people that are sick well, of <laughs> at least for the for the first month when oh actually yeah listen <laughs> yeah but you know there's there's still plenty of people that have sort of held on to those those restrictions and that mm-hmm. lifestyle because they're trying to do the best that they can to 
sort of stop the spread of, of COVID. Um, and they've maybe, I'm not, I'm sure there's obviously a lot more people that are sick of it and they just want to get back outside and, and see their friends and their family and, and be a sociable person again. But I guarantee there's a lot of people in that group that also feel like, what's the point of going back outside? I've proven that I can live just fine on my own for a whole year uh, during this pandemic. Why stop now? You know, some mm-hmm. people might get comfortable in this sort of this sort of lifestyle, and I think it's it's really kind of horrible that you have this many people across the world being shut-ins and that sort of thing. And because like I said earlier, it sort of has a negative connotation uh, where if someone, if you like hear about that sort of person, you immediately associate sort of negative, like, Oh, they're, they're like a basement dweller. They're probably, you know, super unhealthy and, and just, chowing down all the food they can just because they can and they're living off of the government that sort of thing yes but, and all while completely ignoring the you know psychological issues at mm-hmm, play mm-hmm. yeah uh there's a lot of like disregarding the fact that we need to face up to mental illness and mm-hmm. actually fix things <laughs> it is it is interesting yeah. to me that it, this is another issue that could very well be or that is um, associated very much with mental health issues, but we sort of shrug it off because we apply a negative, like, aura to it. Right. Um, uh, as with a lot of things, if we don't want to solve a problem, we just ignore them. Uh, and even if something is, even if we talk about solving mental health crises with gun violence, for example, we'll completely ignore the mental health aspect of a different thing we don't approve of it's just it's hypocritical it it comes up in conversation for about two minutes and then falls to the wayside to some other less important (laughs) portion of the conversation (laughs) unfortunately so i think in that regard this this short is very uh powerful uh amidst all the other uh beautiful aspects of it um but the the story itself is very strong. Yeah. Well, and I want to compliment the the acting by our lead in, in this short, uh, Teruyuki Kagawa. Mm-hmm. He was fantastic at portraying how uncomfortable uh, the Hikikomori was at, at facing the outside world. Mm-hmm. He really, like, you could feel the anxiety in everything that he did. You could feel when he was calm. You could feel when he was anxious and you could feel like as he finally makes his breakthrough and, you know, he, he falls in love with this pizza girl and he wants to go find her and he finally makes this breakthrough. You can feel how powerful it is because of how the actor is carrying the character. Mm-hmm. It's really compelling. And I, 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 it seems like the act, I looked up a little bit. It seems like the actor does like um, Japanese theater performances and stuff like that mm-hmm. and i you know those are like really um like body language is a really important part of the japanese theater and that's you know that's where his acting is really shining in this short is the body language that's what's conveying all of that it's not there aren't words that are conveying how he's feeling it's it's all in his body language and he conveys it very well mm-hmm. yeah um I I have very little wrong with this short as a whole. Um you know, like message-wise, plot-wise, filmmaking-wise, it's all very much a positive experience for me. Um I don't think it'll work with everyone, but um the I think this would work again uh, like the other two even. Um work very well as like a feature length sort of thing. Um, but I think this one works the best in a short format. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it could have been explored a little bit more, uh, but I still appreciate it very much in its current format. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and again, this is you know like kind of so it would be post memories of murder bong, which we haven't seen yet, but it, it's like right around the host, and I would say that from a filmmaking perspective, it feels like bong's works from that era. Hmm. Which is to say, it feels it feels good. It 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 looks great. Uh, there's some really nice usage of light mm-hmm. uh, while he's in his uh, house and he's you know all locked up. Obviously, he's really trying to escape the sun. He says the sun is hot and he doesn't want to be out in it. And so you, he has his curtains drawn all the time, and you have like you know nice cascading light coming through the cracks in the curtains, and it it makes for some really pretty scenes inside of the house. And then when he finally steps outside of his house to, you know, step over his fear in order to get what he wants, mm-hmm. uh, everything is blinding and, and oversaturated and blown out, at least for a little while. And of course, I, it's interesting how this short concludes with, you know, he he decides to try and look for this girl because she inspired something in him, you know, his world, so to speak, started to shake <laughs> as, as, and that's partly where the name comes from. I would say mostly where the name comes, I guess, but uh, she inspired something within him and he learns from her manager that after her visit with him, that she has become a hikikomori. And so that's kind of what inspires him to leave his house because it it very much seems that again, and, and I think that this is probably true for most hikikomori, he doesn't want to live his life like this. Mm-hmm. This isn't something that he desires, but it's something that has happened through, you know, some event in his life, some trauma, and it's how he continues to live. But when he hears this, he obviously does not want what he has gone through for the girl. Right. So it's this dual mixture of him wanting to save her from his life and also, you know, romantic feelings that finally push him out the door. And when he gets out the door, we discover that everyone... (laughs) seemingly in at least Tokyo has become a hikikomori. Mm -hmm. It's like after this girl uh, decides this after visiting his apartment, it starts this epidemic of people becoming hikikomori. And so he steps out onto these completely empty streets. It's like something out of the twilight zone. Mm -hmm. And this is like the only part in this short where it really kind of starts to feel uncomfortable because he's like running through the streets and, you know, he's looking in and there's a really um, disconcerting scene with a man standing in a glass door. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it too. But it's it's it makes you uncomfortable because it goes on for like, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds. And then the man kind of just backs away out of the door. And it's it's kind of scary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's like peering in and he can see people. And he's because of his experience of being a hikikomori for over 10 years, he can like sort of tell how long <laughs> they've been living in this state. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's really striking as he runs through these empty streets and then he, he finds the girl's house and, you know, she wants absolutely nothing to do with him. She wants, she wants this now. And, you know, it takes an earthquake to get the people back out of their houses. And you think this is like this big triumphant moment where, all these people are out of their houses. They're going to go back to living out in the world. And then I think it's a really nice touch when Bong has them as the shaking stops, they all go back into their houses like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. But he, for his purpose, rushes to the girl. And, you know, this girl has these tattoos of these buttons on her arms and legs, and he pushes the, the love button um was am i getting that right or was it did it say something else um yeah no i think that's uh i think that's right i hope hopefully the the merde short kind of messed up my mind for a while (laughs) after so i I, you know i had to digest this one after (laughs) 
Um, and, and so then he kind of convinces her uh, that I guess there is something compelling in the outside world and that she shouldn't hide inside. Yeah, it's um, the whole the whole ending. Uh, I wouldn't say it took me by surprise with with how um, odd the other two felt at like at its climactic moments and that sort of thing. Um, but I was definitely brought a, a little bit out of my relaxed state and was sort of forced to reflect on on uh, what had just happened. Um, but it's, I would say it has, it has a lot of heart and it's, it's like a good mix of lonely, sweet, and, uh, it has a lot of heart. That's all it is. But, uh, this is definitely my favorite of the three. Mine too. So I, I don't think we'll do individualized ratings since you all already know which ones are our favorites and our rankings. Um, it seems like Kobe and I are on the same page across the board with this. Mm -hmm. In first place, we would have um, Shaking Tokyo. In second place, Interior Decorating. In third place, Nerde. Um, but as a complete package, you know, I think that these movies really take you through a wide range of emotions. And I do feel like what, what they're exploring is all like intimately Tokyo. Hmm. But I do think it's made possible. It, it's, it's different than what you would get if the, these were three Japanese directors. You're going to get a very different picture, a very different intimately aware picture of Tokyo from Japanese directors who have lived there their entire lives. Mm -hmm. So you get something that is like intimate, but from an outsider's perspective. And I think that gives these like a really interesting feeling. Mm -hmm. But it's an odd one. Uh, I do, I do recommend it. I do recommend uh, watching it. It's wholeheartedly entertaining for its uh, like two hour runtime. Mm -hmm. Um, Merde may or may not make you uncomfortable. <laughs> the others may or may not. I I can't say for certain. Um, at the very least, they're they're worth watching on their own if you're familiar with um the works of the director that of the short you're going to be watching. Um, as a complete package, they work better certainly, but um on their own, they're they're very well defined too. Mm hmm. So, uh, Kobe, if you were to rate, because I, I think we don't need to bother rating the individual ones, like I said, mm -hmm. if you were to rate the full package of Tokyo with an exclamation point, what would you give it? Uh, three and a half with an exclamation point. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I, I definitely like it as a as a as a whole package, but there's there's not enough memorability for me to really feel i like it or i more than like it it's um mm -hmm. it's very odd and it's certainly uniquely interesting all three of them but uh i think it's it leaves a lot to be desired um and thematically the the oddness works very well but i can't really see myself revisiting this in any like depth really yeah, same here. I I think I'm probably at a three, closer to a three and a half than a three, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I liked it. Like I said, I was entertained. I I feel like <sighs> Merde feels a bit long in the tooth because, mm -hmm. and maybe it's just because of how disconcerting it feels, sandwiched between these other two. But the pacing between each of these anthology films is i don't know it's it's difficult to put a finger on exactly what i would want mm -hmm. out of it i i do know that i i wanted a bit more out of the first one i felt like the concepts there were interesting but needed more time 
be properly explored. Mm -hmm. And then I think Bongs is the strongest as an individual package. But I mean, I don't know, even with that one, I feel like it could have maybe benefited from a little more time. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so I don't know, I'm left with this like question of I was was the Merde short so good that that should have been the longest one. I don't know. Like I say, it's <laughs> it's it's definitely going to stick in my head the longest just because of the nature of it. But mm-hmm. it is by far the longest. It's the runtime of that is is close to uh, forty five minutes, and it certainly feels that way too. Uh, <laughs> you yeah. can take that as a positive or a negative. I don't. I don't really mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, that about sums it all up, everybody. Uh, Tokyo is available on Amazon Prime currently unfortunately you do have to watch it with advertisements that uh wasn't a great experience took me out of it a little bit okay i have to say something i didn't get a single ad well then you're lucky (laughs) i i got them on all the the predetermined ad rolls and they put them in really awkward places so damn yeah i i didn't love that but (laughs) at any rate uh if anything that we talked about today sounded interesting you should absolutely give it a watch Uh, With all that being said, this is the Synchronicity Podcast. This was episode eight. I'm Destin. And I'm Kobe. And we're signing off. See you guys later.